Father, to hear your your people singing your praises is profound and inexpressible, really. To hear a group of people singing that there is now no condemnation that they dread, singing about the grace that is found in your Son is just hearing them, Father, stirs my heart. I pray you found it pleasing. I thank you that we're able to sing these truths and sing them together and sing them loudly and openly and publicly. Father, what we've sing, sang this morning is the gospel and nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It is no secret we have a very active and real enemy who would seek to undo your work, O Lord, and seek to take us, your children, captive. He does it in large ways. He does it in subtle ways. He would do it this morning. He would block the ears of the lost. He would harden the heart of your children if he could. He would sift us as wheat. He would distract us with so many lesser things. He would cause our minds to stray. He would creep up bitterness within us. Resentment. He would make us bored at the truth of your word. Anything to keep us from beholding the beauty and glory of you in your son, Jesus. He would do anything to prevent us from hearing of your spirit as your word is proclaimed. And we ask that you would. Stop him now. And rise up. As our refuge. And take us in under your wing. And this morning, take your word and make it living and active in our souls. Pray that your spirit would move freely among us. Taking the truths of the scriptures far deeper than our ears and into our very core. We pray that you would give us eyes to behold the glories of Jesus. And the immense price paid for our redemption. We pray, Father. That even now, you would give us a keen sense and awareness of your presence among us. For this is what we need. Lofty speech, eloquent wisdom, flattering words can all fall away. What we need is you. So would you bless us in this time in a unique and spiritual and profound way. For your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me. Open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22 verse 39. Today's text 
is somber and weighty. It's a heavy realization that we come to today. And in some sense, that's good. We need our hearts to have a little weight on them this morning because of what we're going to behold in the life of our Lord. Ultimately, we know the cross is a good thing and the good news of the cross is a great thing. But this particular moment leading up to that is a very difficult thing. We find our Lord this morning in turmoil as we officially enter into what is known as the passion narrative, especially as Luke describes it. These final few hours of Christ's life before His death. In fact, we're going to attempt to look at verses 39 through 54 together because they all happen at the same time in the same place. And by the end of this morning, if we're able to cover all those verses, our Lord will be in chains arrested and in the hands of lawless men. While there is joy in knowing what lies ahead, that's not an event we take lightly, church. Even before we get to the rest of our Lord, we will find Him in the garden in agony. Agonizing over the cup that He's about to drink. Burdened to His knees over what awaits Him in just a few short hours. This is weighty stuff that can weigh heavily on our hearts. And that is good. Let's read our text for today and then as is normal, we'll come back and travel through it. Look in verse 39 with me of Luke 22. And Jesus came out and went, as was His custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed Him. And when He came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour 
and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Let's begin our time looking at verses 39 through 46. Considering our Lord in this garden, we first discover what Luke emphasizes that he was submitted. He was a submitted individual. Submission is the hallmark of these first few verses, particularly submission to the Father. Now, Luke's record of this account is far different from the other gospel accounts. Luke's is much more condensed, much more concise. The other gospel accounts, Matthew and Mark, and even John to some degree, lend a little bit more attention to the disciples. Luke gives very little attention to the disciples, almost omitting them entirely comparative to the other gospels. His focus is primarily upon Christ, and in this first passage, his wrestling, his agonizing, and then his sovereignty. As we really come to consider verses 39 through 46, we come to find out it is one of the most crucial moments in the whole passion narrative. <clears throat> in fact, it's the whole crux of the crucifixion. Now, yes, our salvation hinges upon the cross and the central proclamation of the gospel is Christ on the cross. That's what we proclaim, Christ and the cross. But Christ and the cross happens because of the resolve Jesus discovers here in the garden. He set out to do the Father's will. And that wrestling, that agonizing is solidified here in this lone evening before His arrest. It is a crucial moment in which the cross itself hinges. One individual described this time of prayer as the crucifixion of our Lord's soul. His body will be strung up on the cross in a few hours, but in this garden, His soul is being crucified. The dedication, the commitment, the resolve, the devotion to die and to endure begins right here, church, as He prays this simple prayer with great distress upon His heart. It's a highly emotional moment a spiritually intense moment. And we must come to it with a weighty understanding of it because for Christ, this was no walk in the park. This is no casual evening in the garden. There's no admiration of the flowers or the creatures or, or critters roaming about or the stars in the sky. There's only sweat, blood, pleading, tears, despair, distress. Our Lord is suffering in the garden for you and for me. As soon as the passion narrative in Luke's gospel begins, Christ's suffering begins. And that's where we jump into verse 39. <clears throat> Our Lord has left the final Passover, the Lord's Supper. He's been teaching His disciples one last time, verses 24 through 38 of chapter 22 was his last teaching on three different areas of conflict. Verses 14 through 23, he was instituting the Lord's Supper and he's just left that upper room and he did what was customary. He went up to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And we shouldn't uh, gloss over that verse because Luke intends some, some pretty 
important information in that verse. He, he intends to tell us that the Lord had made this trek many times. In fact, we have come to believe at this point, when Christ is attending the Passover, He regularly camped out on the side of the Mount of Olives. This was a hike that He made often, and yet on this particular night, things are different and He knows it. He spends time alone with the Father. But even amidst the difference of the evening, we find He's not trying to escape. He's not resisting His arrest. He's not hiding out in some deserted cave or deserted region. He's doing what He always did. John chapter 18, the parallel account of this, really clarifies what I'm trying to say and what Luke intends by highlighting this is normal for Jesus. In John chapter 18, verse 1, it says Jesus had spoken these words previously in John. He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron and where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Verse 2 of John 18. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place for Jesus had often met there with His disciples. In Luke 39, of uh, chapter 22, verse 39, Jesus is doing what is customary solely to make it easy for Judas to find Him. He'd been there a number of times with His disciples, Judas included. Judas knew the place. He was very familiar with it. Jesus wasn't escaping. He wasn't in hiding. He was in plain sight where the crowd might come upon Him in verse 47 and take Him away. He knows exactly what is going on. Our Lord isn't retreating church. He's securing His own arrest. He's making things happen. As He goes into this garden with His disciples, He comes to a certain place in verse 40 and He tells them to pray. By verse 41, He's withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And Matthew and Mark tell us that there's three special disciples that have been taken a little further with Jesus, Peter, James, and, and John. And it's presumably them whom He's speaking to in verse 40 as He takes them to a certain place the stones throw away from where He will be and He instructs them to pray. The whole passage is built on prayer. In fact, if you look at verse 46, He reminds them and instructs them again verbatim to pray. It's, it's a bookend or framework of the whole passage and then right in the middle of it the heartbeat of it is verse 42 Christ himself praying it tells us and Luke is trying to convey to us this moment is a moment that must be faced with nothing but prayer it's a point of emphasis a point of necessity and our Lord's instruction to them is very specific pray that you may not enter into temptation it carries the same connotations as verses 31 through 34 of chapter 22. Where Jesus told Peter that Satan's demanding to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, by the time we're in the garden, you pray for yourself. Pray that you wouldn't be sifted like wheat. Pray that you wouldn't succumb to temptation. It echoes much of the same warning in chapter 21, verse 34. Jesus tells the disciples, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, 
And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But you stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The same kind of warning to be awake and be ready when the end of time comes. He's issuing right now in the garden, be awake, be watchful, be ready. This is a very spiritual moment. And he is telling his disciples nothing less than to engage in the spiritual warfare that I'm engaging in. Pray. Labor. Fight. So that temptation wouldn't overcome you. Our Lord's not telling them that if they pray they'd be spared of temptation. He's telling them to pray that temptation may not have the victory. Pray that you might know how to handle what's coming about. Pray so that you'll be prepared for what lies next. Be watchful. For Christ, this is a highly spiritually uh, warfare type moment. And he's telling the disciples it's the same for you. Verse 41, he instructs them and then Jesus does three things himself. He, number one, withdraws and number two, he kneels down and number three, he begins to pray. He withdraws because this isn't a moment that he can readily and easily share with others. His emotions are so distraught, his heart and soul is in turmoil that he really can't stand the company of other people. Privacy is what he needs. He needs to be removed. He needs to be alone. And he needs to specifically be alone with the Father. No distractions. No hindrances. No other cares or concerns. I can't bear the company of people. I must be alone with my Father. The word for withdraw or withdrew literally means to be pulled away. To be pulled away violently. In other words, Christ has found Himself taking His disciples up to a very familiar mount and there leaving them and being compelled to, to be alone with the Father. Which tells us something significant. Out of all that Christ has done and all that Christ knew and all that Christ has been a part of and all that He's taught, He has realized in this moment there is nothing better, nothing else that can be done than to be alone with the Father. So He withdrew. And he knelt down. We've already established in Luke's gospel what was customary uh, for prayer in the times of Jesus. In these times, it was customary to stand and lift your eyes towards heaven and raise your arms. And that's how people prayed. But Christ does not do that here. He is driven to his knees. In kind of a symbolic picture, the weight of the moment has driven him to the ground. And humility is what he's expressing. Brokenness is what he's expressing. Dependence is what he's expressing. Church, just let the weight of the moment grip your heart for, for a second. Here is the Savior of the world, the Creator of all things. And for a reason he's about to share is in this garden, in this, on this evening, and he is on his knees in agony. 
it's this very profound image in my mind where the creator of all things is lying in the dirt. And he prays, verse 41, he's voicing his heart to God. The early church saw in this a great example and model to face daunting moments in one's life. When the world and the things of the world are too much to bear, follow the example of our Lord. Withdraw, get on your knees and pray. This is what he does. The emphasis of his prayers in verse 42, and it's on the Father's will being done and accomplished, not his own. In fact, the whole thrust of the prayer, as small as it is comparatively, the whole thrust of it is submission. The heart of Christ at this moment and in this time is the Father's desire and the Father's willingness, not His own. It's not that the Son's will is different from the Father's, like there's this divine disagreement going on here within the Trinity or the Godhead. It's specifically a moment of express submission. But also a very unique picture into the incarnation of Christ. Though being fully God here in this moment of full humanity, as well, he is needing to submit to the Father. The submission centers around this reference to a cup in the middle of the prayer. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. If you permit, if you would desire, if you would like to deliver me from a cup. Several places throughout Scripture, a cup is used and referenced in a negative sense. I'll just mention a few this morning. Psalm chapter 11, verse 6. Let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. That shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, 17 is another reference where cup is used negatively. All prophetic. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, and stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You have drunk to the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. Christ comes in this garden moment. His heart is beat down. He's kneeling alone before the Father. He's praying. His prayer is one of submission, but it's one of pleading that He would be delivered from a certain cup. It is nothing less than the cup of the wrath of God that will be drunk in deeply of Christ on the cross. It's not for fear of death we find our Lord in agony. Many brothers and sisters have gone to death joyfully on behalf of Christ. What has our, our Lord's soul in turmoil is the drinking of this cup. 
If you look in verse 37, Christ knows what's going to happen. Verse 37 says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. He knows what lies ahead. He knows he will be numbered with the transgressors. He knows he will be strung up upon the cross. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is taking upon sin of humanity and being punished by God for it. There's no symbolic moment at the cross, church. It is real endurance of the wrath of God. Where all of a sudden, the floodgates of heaven are opened in divine indignation, anger, and punishment pours upon who would be seen in God's eyes as the most sinful individual on the earth. Every white lie that you and I have ever told, every casual moment of a lustful thought, every wicked word that we've ever spoken, every ounce and moment of gossip and slander and maliciousness, every instance of bitterness in our heart, every moment of idol worship and selfishness and self-promotion and pride, Christ took it all. He became prideful in that moment. As if He was prideful. He became as if He was bitter. All to drink this cup. No, it's not the guards that Christ is in turmoil over. It's not the betrayal by a kiss. It's not the crown of thorns. It's not the nails through his wrist. It's not the, the mocking of the Roman guards standing around his cross. It's not the dividing his garments among them. It's the cup. Despite his request from the Father in verse 42 to remove the cup, Christ shows unwavering commitment and total submission to the Father. The singular word, nevertheless, transforms this prayer. And He explicitly says, not my will, but yours be done. The cup is there and it's full and it's going to be poured out. But not my will. Yours, O oh God. Your will be done. Don't gloss over those, those words because in that moment, in that expression, we find Christ freely consenting to die on the cross. We've said it over and over again in Luke's Gospel and we'll say it over and over again. Christ was never forced to the cross and He was never forced even by God. He freely consents to the will of the Father. I will freely do what you have commissioned me to do. I'll freely do what you have called me to do. I'll freely drink in the cup if that is what you have for me to do. Leon Morris wrote about this passage. He says the real battle of the cross was fought here. And he's right. How can Christ so freely and willfully be nailed, strung up in front of everybody and bleed 
and die, it's because in the garden He has set His soul to do the Father's will. Regardless of what that might entail. Here He's resolved. Here He's devoted. Here He's committed. Here, every temptation to flee is whisked away. And the only thing He's concerned about now is the obedience He will show to the Father and the glory that He'll bring to Him because of His death. Christ is most certainly concerned more with the glory of God than the salvation of humanity. But it, it's what makes God so glorious that humanity would be saved at the cross. What we come to find out from verse 42 is a Trinitarian reality of our salvation. Not only is it Christ who's drinking in this cup, but it's the will of the Father to pour it out upon Him. We find here it's the will of the Father to save humanity. It's Christ who executes that salvation. And it's the Spirit who applies it. We know that from other places. It's God's desire to punish Christ for you. The most famous verse in all of Scripture. John 3.16 God so loved the world He gave His Son. The same principle applies here. God so desires to save you and I that He has a cup ready for His Son. It is a cup of wrath and punishment so that Romans 3, He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. It's the Father who delights in your salvation. It's the Father who desires your salvation. It's the Father who's planned it all out, who's willed it into being. And it's the Father who sent His Son. When Christ comes to God the Father in verse 42, asking for deliverance, it's the Father who instructs Him and says, no, you will continue on. And you will go to the cross, you will die, and you will drink in the wrath. And the Son submits. As we move on through this weighty evening of our Lord, we come to verse 43 and 44. There's a chance that your Bible might not have those verses. Your Bible might skip from verse 42 to verse 45. Your Bible might bracket those verses out or your Bible might be like the ESV version and put a footnote at the bottom telling you that these verses are not found in some of the earliest manuscripts. I think that's worth mentioning here. Luke is the only one who records these two verses. None of the other gospel writers do. This instant with the angel in agony. And yet, in all my reading, I've discovered that most everybody agrees the um, evidence for including these verses and the evidence for omitting these verses are pretty evenly split. There is, in my opinion, a slight favor that these two verses are original to Luke. Number one, I think they uh, carry the same Lucan patterns and structures and words that he's used throughout the whole gospel. It's very rare for anything that's ever included in a text or a manuscript to follow an author's uh, structure in such close ways as these verses do. But two, there's a parallel here, as is customary with Luke, between the emphasis narratives and the passion narrative. The emphasis narrative is the birth of Christ. And there we find angels doing the bidding and working of God. 
telling Mary and telling Joseph and telling wise men and proclaiming to shepherds and all of these wonderful things. So it's not uncommon for Luke to reference them here again at his death. That an angel from heaven in verse 43 would appear to Christ and strengthen him. Also in favor for their inclusion, in my opinion, is that we know scripture calls angels ministering spirits of God. And we have found angels ministering to Christ before in his temptation. Matthew chapter four, verse 11. They've showed up after he's endured the 40 days in the desert. I think verse 43 is original to the text, and I think it is God's blessing upon Christ in response to his prayer. As the Father commissions him to continue on, he blesses him with the appearance of an angel to help strengthen him and minister to him. It's a, it's a text that drives us to consider the very humanity of Christ and the very weight of the moment. If we take this verse and the temptation verse alone, those are the only two instances, both in very weighty moments and critical moments to the salvation plan of God. Those are the only two moments where angels have come and ministered to Christ, and yet they have. It's also fitting because Hebrews chapter 1 tells us Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. So here they are now strengthening Him. And they strengthen Him because while we might read black and white or even red letter words here casually, the truth is, verse 44, He's in agony as we've referenced. The agony here that is mentioned is critical. It's a, a major distress. The English word doesn't quite convey the, the drawing upon the soul of Christ. And even in the midst of the angel's presence, and even in the midst of the angel strengthening him, he's still in agony and prays more earnestly. That phrase, praise more earnestly, is not an elevation in quality, but in quantity. Christ isn't praying better prayers, He's praying more. More forcefully, more diligently, more passionately. What we have recorded in verse 42 is a fragment of the pleading of Christ and the submission of Christ. Hours go by of our Lord agonizing in prayer with the Father. To the point that verse 44, Luke tells us his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Some commentators run to a rare medical condition. Some of you might know this called hematidrosis, where the uh, blood vessels or capillaries in a person due to their physical or mental distress will burst and will begin oozing out of their pores intermingled with their sweat. That's what we're consider here Luke says this is what it was like for him not necessarily this is what was happening the conclusion is the same however Christ is in such mental agony and physical distress that it is physically expressed and manifested we see famous artwork of Christ in the garden on his knees with angels all around him ministering to him that's not how Luke describes it Luke describes a man who is in the dirt. A man who is so distressed and agonizing that he is sweating profusely. A man who is likely 
praying very loudly. A man who might even have, due to the amount of sweat on his brow, dirt caked on his face. This could very well be the most humble moment we find of our Lord. The turmoil ceases by verse 45. He gets up and he goes to the disciples and he finds them infamously asleep. Luke is the only one who tells us why they're asleep. They're sleeping for sorrow. Other Gospels tell us that Jesus actually went and found them three times sleeping. He left them to pray and then He came back and they were asleep. He woke them up, told them to pray, left, came back, they were asleep. Woke them up, told them to pray, left, came back, they were asleep. Luke records it once, but he tells us they're sleeping for sorrow. Leon Morris translates that as, as worn out for grief. So emotionally exhausted, they can't stand it. Christ wakes them up and says, why are you sleeping at an hour like this? I think it's in that question we find what will characterize Christ's death from this point out. His first taste of abandonment. For here, His closest friends, presumably Peter James and John can't even identify with his agonizing long enough to pray for him or stay awake. He is alone in his suffering. This is something he must endure on his own. This is a cup he must drink on his own. And from the moment of agonizing in the garden in such a way as this, this is a moment he must face alone. And so he repeats verse 40 verbatim. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Realize the weight of the moment. I think Leon Morris is right when he says this garden moment was the real battle. And I think we come to verse 45 and verse 46 and we find Jesus emerging with victory. Strength and resolve to obey the will of the Father. James Edwards says this, he says, this is the most intense description of Jesus' sufferings in the Gospels. And it occurs not at Golgotha, but at Gethsemane, this garden, it is His decision to submit to the Father's redemptive will. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus' soul is crucified, and on the Mount of Calvary, His body is surrendered. I think He is right as well. This is the most intense description of Christ's suffering in the Gospels. And here, Christ is resolved To take your wrath. Oh church, don't come to this passage with a familiarity that causes you to miss out on the significance of it. Come to this passage and let your heart be weighed down over what Christ is enduring and He's enduring it for you and your salvation. 
This is a this is a, a moment that tells us your salvation is incredibly costly and that's so incredibly important. And any any attempt to minimize God's working of regeneration in your soul is a dishonor upon the suffering and agonizing of Christ in the garden. It's not the arrest that Luke will describe as the most painful moment. It's not the cross. It's not the death. It's this moment. And it's in this moment we find Christ resolved to submit to the Father and the Father's desire to send His Son on your behalf. The question now is, do you believe that? Is this real? Did Christ submit to the Father? Did the Father send His Son so that you might be saved? Better yet, is it real for you? A salvation that Christ so agonizes over to to accomplish on your behalf. A, A salvation that is so real and so serious. Has it affected the kind of change in your heart that would mirror this kind of agonizing? Has it regenerated you? Has it rewired you? Has it reconstructed your perspective and your thought life and your your desires of your heart? Do you now find yourself warring against sin? If not, it's because you don't realize the kind of wrath that Christ realized in the garden. Christ knew what it would take to secure your salvation. A wrath from God that often the world ignores, neglects, and mocks. And there was nothing funny about it to Jesus. And yet, He freely consents to take it. And the Father freely consents to dump it out. So that Romans 8.1 would be true. There would therefore be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that Romans 3 would be true. God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Because Romans 3.23 is true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so is verse 24. And are justified freely as a gift. The grace that is found in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith. God has a plan of redemption and He secured it at a great price and a great cost. He secured it so that you might be saved if you will only turn to Christ. Place your faith in Him. You'll be saved. Believer who's already tasted the grace and mercy of God, let a passage like this increase your devotion and thankfulness to Christ. Realize the weight of the wrath of God in the cup that Christ prays over and praise Him Thank Him. Worship Him for taking it upon Himself on your behalf. This this cup that has Christ down on His knees in agony will never be tasted by you and I. Because Christ drank it all. Not one drop will fall from the cup of God into our lives because Christ 
took every ounce of His wrath. That is worth praising Him for. So that's what we're going to do. Let me pray and then we're going to worship. Father, a passage like this is weighty and full of so much information that we want to highlight and talk about. And most importantly, want it to sink down into our souls. God, this is not a light moment. This is not an easy moment. For we see with our hearts and with our eyes and with our minds the suffering of Your Son who suffers because You have made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Him we might be righteous. We see His suffering because He knows what it's going to take. We see Him suffering because He wants to be sufficient in drinking in the wrath. Father, we see Your Son in this garden suffering because You have willed it so. Oh, we are an ignorant people. We do not understand the depth of divine wrath for sin. But Your Son knows it. We do not realize just what we've been spared from. We do not realize that this is a cup we will never have to taste because of Christ and how significant that is. Oh Jesus, You took this cup of wrath so that we might have a cup of celebration in Your kingdom. You're agonizing in the garden. You're sweating. You're praying and pleading. You're falling to your knees. All of these things should convince us of how serious it is. How serious sin is in your eyes. How rightly it deserves to be punished. And how much we've been freed from. Christ, you were brought to your knees. I know for sure we couldn't endure. We have been saved from so much. And Father, no preacher can convey that. No, no person can put that into the heart of another. Only you can. And I plead with all my soul that You with Your Spirit would apply the realities of this passage to every heart here so that people would truly begin to taste and see how much they've been freed from and how much they can be freed from and maybe how much they're still under if they haven't turned to Christ. Would You accomplish this work for us, Father, please? In Jesus' name. Amen.